Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. And now, it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Gray. Before we start, I want to let you know if you miss any part of today's show or want to hear it again or share it, there's a way and Sun Gray will tell you how. Listen to all UIYB past and present interviews by going to flagandbanner.com and clicking on Radio Show, or subscribe to our podcasts wherever you like to listen by searching Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Also, you may simply like flagandbanner.com's Facebook page to watch our live stream and receive timely notifications of upcoming guests. Back to you, Carrie. My guest today is Mr. Gary Wayne Lay. I love that name. It is so Southern. Thank you. (laughs) Gary Wayne Lay. Uh, I bet that's what your mother said. (laughs) Gary Wayne Lay. Anyway, founder of GWL Advertising, C-Spot Run Productions, and GWL Digital, all headquartered in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know his good works every time you see a Landers Automotive Middleton Heat and Air or Heart Hospital ad on TV. Yes, Gary is the man behind those commercials and others. His company, founded in 1993, currently has 60 clients across 13 states. At first, you might think, oh, just another ad man. But wait, Mr. Gary Wayne Lay is one of two survivors of the 1965 Titan II missile crisis near Searcy, Arkansas. In the past 20 years, he has had several brushes with his mortality and says, I truly believe there is something special God wants me to do. I just need to figure it out. Isn't that what we all think? It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the luckiest man I know, Mr. Gary Lay. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you. Before we get into the business of advertising, which is a hard, complex really intangible business uh i've got to hear about your titan II survivor story everybody i mention it to thinks it's the one that happened in 1980 because we also had a titan II missile crisis in 1980 but yours was in 1965 the first one you were 17 years old a high school graduate soon to be going off to play football at college for the university of arkansas and it was your first day on the job what happened well, it was, uh, yeah, it was the first day when it blew, but what people didn't know, I worked there the whole summer before. My dad was a business manager for the pipe fitters, steam fitters in Little Rock, so he got me a job as a laborer. So I was able to work there in the summer, and it was an incredible job. 68 degrees, uh, you know, and during the summer when it was 105 in Arkansas. Why was and it 68 degrees? It was a, a totally air-conditioned underground, mm. like oh, a big city. Oh, I see. Like a big city underground. So, you know, I got to work there all summer. Made some money where I could go, you know, get ready to go to school the next year. That was the year of your junior college. That was the that was between I mean, my if you're jun- junior and senior year. Yeah. So, you know, I had aspirations of uh I had an aspirations of playing ball at Pavel. Now, let's be real honest, uh I was a pretty decent high school player, but those boys at Pavel were a lot better than I was. Mm-hmm. So God probably did me a favor but not putting me through that. But what happened was that fall, that next summer, before I go to school, uh, I wanted to really be in incredible shape. 
just incredible shape. So I worked behind a jackhammer shoveling shale all summer. And I was probably in the best physical condition of my life. And my dad said, okay, before you get ready to go to school, go for two days and all this to try out, uh, I'll let you work on the bases. I'll let you work. Did your dad Wixer. work at the base? No, he was in Little Rock, but he had men that worked there. I got you. That were pipe fitters, steam fitters that belonged to Local 155 out of Little Rock because there were, you know, pipe fitters, steam fitters, there were electricians, there were sheet metal workers, all because it was so, a remodification of the of the missile silo. So he was a subcontractor. Well, no, he was say. actually he was just a union man I got that uh, had union employees that worked for him. But, uh, you know, and, and this was right in the middle of the Cold War. You know, we were trying to keep up with Russia, so we were doing this and they would do this. So this Titan II program was all a function of that. But anyway, so I go to come to Jacksonville Air Force Base and, and go through the uh, checking in and all this on the Friday before I go to work on Monday. And I get my identification papers and all that. So I go to work Monday morning. And, uh, you know, and like I say, it was an incredible job. You go in the what they call the hole down underground. You go in there at 8 o'clock. Then they had a deal that come out at 10.15 for a smoke break. Then you go back down in the hole, come out at 11.45 for lunch, and then, you know, go back in at 1 o'clock, come out at 3.15 for a smoke break, and then come out at 4.30 and go home. Perfect. So it was, yeah, it was ideal. But anyway, uh, so I had been working. The missile silo itself was 180 feet deep, and, and we had been working in the bottom all morning. So when we came out for lunch, uh, sit there and had lunch and all this, and uh, then we started back down uh, into the into the uh, missile base, and you know me, I'm still my personality. I've just got to stop and chatter. So the guys I'm working with, they get on the elevator and they go right to the bottom, start working again. Well, I'm sitting there talking with these other guys, and I'm round behind the the missile itself in the tunnel. There's an escape ladder there. There's only two ways in and out of that thing. One was the elevator up and down. The other one was the escape ladder that went up and down. And you're not above ground. No, you're just we're not 80, all we're, the way we're 80, down. We're 80 feet below at that point. Not 880, just No, just 80. Because the missile went all the way. There was eight levels on the silo. Okay, so you're halfway so I'm, down. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there talking, and all of a sudden there's a, just an incredible flash. And the sound, similar to what you would run into if you light a gas stove, you know, that And it was never an explosion. It was a flash fire. So the instinct, the instinct when the fire flashed, the lights went out, the fire flashed, the instinct was to get away from that fire. Yeah. So I got on the escape ladder and started down. And I think at that point in time, and that was probably my first You started down because the fire was above? The fire was next to me, and the first inclination was to get away from that. And that would have been easier to go down. Oh, yeah, because if you, if you, there was no other place to go. You're in the corner with an escape ladder there, you'd have to go back through the flames. Oh, I got you. So... Go down, and I think at that point in time is my first realization that, hey, it won my time. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, totally dark, and I'm down the escape ladder all the way to the next level, and I thank God probably said at that point in time, hey, we're going to do something different here. So I'm starting back up the escape ladder, and these guys are falling all over the top of me because everybody's trying to get away from it. And I get back up to where we were, lights are still out, and I feel my way back around that gun barrel, to a cableway which led to the control center and of course in that control center the gauges were going nuts everything was happening they knew something was wrong 
And so they come running down. Well, I collapsed in the cableway from smoke inhalation. And so they got me up, threw me in the decontamination shower, um, washed me off. And they kept, I was two at this point in time, and they kept saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to be fine. And I kept saying over and over, God, don't let me die. Because, I mean, I'm in shock at this point in time. And uh, they put me in an ambulance. And that, uh, Carrie, that's the longest ride I've ever had because there was so much pain. And I went to Porter Rogers Hospital in Searcy because that was the closest one. And I got the emergency room, and they hit me with two shots of morphine. And at that point in time, the pain was over. But there was so much scurrying around in that hospital because they didn't know what they had coming. You know, you got fifty, you got fifty-five workers on 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 that silo, so they were scurrying around. Well, nobody else got out. They and, thought they thought get ready, everybody's oh, going to be coming. coming here, but nobody else got out. And and what happened was through the investigation process, and my dad was on the investigating committee, but through the investigation process, uh, they they discovered nobody burned. It was all smoke inhalation, and and I've talked to. I've made several talks, obviously, over the last 50 years or whatever since it happened. And uh, the most comforting thing, I, I talked to the uh, White County Historical Society. And what was really interesting, there were a lot of, of people that are my age that lost their parents. Because there were a lot of people from Searcy, Rosebud, through there that lost their dad or their brother or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was able to tell them, hey, they never suffered. It was over in just a matter of seconds. But I was telling you a really uh, story that'll send just send chills. My wife and I are getting ready to leave after the talk, and a, a lady came up, a little older than me, came up and she uh, she said, "Thank you for your talk." She said, "Can I see your hands?" And I thought, "Now where are we going with this? You know, can I see your hands?" So she's looking at my hands and she said, "I was the." nurse in the emergency room when they brought you in and she said i never thought that you'd use your hands again because that's how bad they were burned and uh boy we both hugged each other and i said i am so glad you're here but it was uh your hands look fine yeah well you know what was really interesting uh for the long period of time that i'm in the hospital i never had any more pain and and blisters got up two and three inches tall on my hands and on my face, and I want to say that's what happened to my hair, but I think most of my family is bald anyway. But <laughs> what happened, uh, they flew some medicine in from Lackland Air Force Base. Lackland was the burn center of the country. And because it was an Air Force accident, they flew that in, and they kept me sprayed down for the whole period of time I was in the hospital. And then three days before I left, they came in with some tongs and scraped all those blisters away, and there was new skin already forming underneath them. My mother couldn't figure out why I wasn't having any pain. And so she bent over to kiss me goodnight as she was leaving the hospital one night, and her whole mouth went numb. That's how strong that medication was. Oh. But um, it was, it was uh, you know, it was quite an ordeal. I went to Washington uh, right after I started school because the trial was going on. You know, there's 53 people that have lost their lives. So now the, the big deal is who was to blame. Right. And so Peter Kiewit was a contractor at that point in time. So you had either the contractor or the Air Force. Now, the the decision at the end was pretty muddled. But I was the only one that really was down there. There was a painter that was one of the survivors that got out. But he was in the cableway walking down, and he saw the smoke, and he turned around. And I think he was in the hospital one night just for observation. But I was down there. And, and the attorneys 
the attorneys kept wanting to me to say there was somebody welding down there which caused this thing to happen. Well, there wasn't anybody welding because I'm the only one who got out, and I know what was going on down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then what happened, too, there was another side of the story, and that is every base that was active as far as construction, an Air Force crew of escorts would come out from Jacksonville every morning. And if you went into the silo, you had to have an escort with you. And yeah. the escorts had a sensor detector belts, a kind of little klaxon, if you will, that if they detected any odor whatsoever, that klaxon would automatically ring the siren and we'd come out of there. So we had test drills all the time. Or if some fake thing would happen, an odor would happen, we'd come out. Well, there weren't any down there or they'd still been there. And so what they discovered was that the uh, uh, the security at the Air Force bases had gotten really lax because they were in the second year, third year of remodeling and all that. And all the escorts were playing gin in the Quonset Hut on top ground. So there never was an official ruling, but the word came down, was it an Air Force problem or was it a construction you know a construction company problem. so you you think because they weren't using the sensors that there was an odor link well leak there that was, had been going on for a while the investigating committee discovered we were running fuel from from the bottom to the top and the investigating committee of which my dad was a member discovered that the auxiliary power unit that would kick on if there was a problem a wire shorted out and at the same time there was a fuel line that ruptured and started spraying on that and when it got hot enough it's when that blaze occurred. There wasn't an explosion. Mm-hmm. If somebody cut into a fuel line, you know, they would have been burned up. You know, that thing would have, it would have had a lot more impact. But uh, Well, you know, and they'd have found a welder, wouldn't they? Wouldn't well, they? You'd think you'd they'd think find so. a welder. If it happened while he was welding, he'd have probably well, died instantly. And he would have had a very, very severe burns and yes. so forth. And, and they're just that just didn't happen. So did now, your dad care that you didn't support the Air Force on that? No, I mean, because actually he was a construction worker. But it really, only, only thing he was, it was it was really, this is the way my family was. This mm-hmm. is the way my dad was. You know, obviously lawsuits were rampant. Now, they weren't to the extent that they are today if something like that happens. Yeah. But, you know, people lost their, their provider. They yes. lost their family members. Uh, so there were lawsuits for everybody that was involved. And the attorney for my dad's union said, well, Wayne, his name was Wayne. He said, you know, you're, Gary's been through a lot. We probably need some legal action. My dad was fine. He said, no. He said, I want my expenses paid. I got my boy back. That's all we want. So we never, and that wasn't like my family. They wouldn't have ever done anything like that. And I, 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 had, like some that. Ni- I had some nightmares after I went to school. But, Did you, you know, go to school? So, yeah. How long before you went to school? I went to school. Was, I was in the hospital. I want, to, I want to say 21 days, 17 days, something like that. But I got, I got to start. The people that drug you out of the uh, tunnel, you said, uh, the cable, the cable, the cable way, the cable way. Uh-huh. How were they not killed? Well, they were in the control center. The control center was hundreds of feet from where the flash blew, and they were separated from that smoke. So they weren't near that. So uh, they, and they were just they were. And Air they Force, just saw you through like a window. No, they were Air Force personnel. They when they ghost gauges started really going nuts in the control center. Then obviously they came running down that cable and see what had gone on. Oh, and what I had see. Happened. And they re- and they found you yeah, and rescued a, you and drug you back. Collapsed when I was about halfway down that cable. 
And so you, this was September the August 19th. 9th, 1965 oh, oh, oh. at 110. August 9th, okay. <laughs> Never forget that. So you school started on in September Gosh, per I, usual? Something like that. I can't and, remember. And you were in the hospital how long? Uh, you know, I, I don't really remember. It's either two or three weeks uh, from that time, but I was able to uh, – I was able to to start to school, you know, pretty well on time. I uh, went through Rush and the whole ball of wax. Wow. Uh, and that was another funny story, which I'll get away from that missile. We just talk, but talk about being from a small school, right? Uh-huh. Went to Clinton. I was 47 in my graduating class. That's so, where you went to high school? Uh-huh. Clinton, so when Clinton I, Arkansas? When okay. I started, 47 in my graduating class. Yeah. So when I went through orientation at Fayetteville, the first test I took for an orientation, there was 310 students in it s in the auditorium i was petrified i was just i'd come apart my mother and dad were up there with me you know i had to bring this kid to school and so i go outside and my dad's a construction worker obviously he's got his khaki pants on he's smoking his filter cool <laughs> and he said uh how was it how was it they're excited because i'm going to school i said i can't do it can't make it there is no way i can make it and he threw that cigarette down. He said, well, I'll tell you what you do. You get out and get a job and put me through. I can make it. <laughs> Never forgot that. That was an early lesson learned. But uh, uh, no. And uh, well, So did you go back in? Uh, did you go back in? Yeah, I went. Well, I graduated with a three-something. You so know, you went back in, and so you turned around uh, and went back in? I made it. But uh, I guess you had PTSD, don't you think? I think the percep- perception. When you grow up like that, now this changed with with. It's changed with all the communication we have now. It's changed with with everybody's aware of everything now. But we were separated. We were we were shell shocked, and and it's just you know your perception was if if people were from Little Rock, they were just better than you. Didn't yeah. matter what they were doing. Right. They were just better. Bigger mm-hmm. school and all that. I'll, I'll share with you if we have time. I'll share you with another deal talking about perception. Uh-huh. We were playing a, a school from Little Rock. Now, when, we when traveled, you were in high school. Yeah, when we traveled, when we traveled, we traveled on a yellow school bus. We had a sack lunch. We didn't get to go to the restaurants and eat and all this kind of stuff. But we had a really incredible football team one year. What happens in little schools like that, you don't have a, quote, most of the time you don't have a program, a football program. Yeah. But you will have kids that will come together one time and just makes you really good. Then you have to rebuild again and find it and come back again. Mm-hmm. But we were playing school from Little Rock that came up to Clinton. Because y'all were good. Yeah, we were good. They were on the schedule. Well, we pulled up in front of the gym. There's two big Continental Trailway buses. <laughs> we walked through the gym because they're getting dressed in the gym. They've all got these brand new girdle hip pads and all this stuff on. We were, I mean, just nuts. And at halftime, it's 7 to 7. And we walk in, and, and my best friend, who didn't get to go to school, but maybe one of the best athletes I ever had, ever was around, just didn't have the grades yeah. and didn't have the money. Yeah. But um, he looked over at me, and he said, Gary, we're a lot better than these guys. Oh, I love it. But we were just shocked. Intimidated. And final score, 42-7 to seven, us. Oh, yay! Yeah, I mean, it was. But it's, again, it's kind of like advertising. It's perception. And perception, it works on you, you know. Uh, but anyway, that's not what that's, we're talking that's, about. The that's, that's just that's men, that's mental strength overcoming 
you know, a kid's youthfulness. You can be intimidated as a kid. That's mental capacity there that you just dug in. I mean, it just took one kid to say we're better than that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you believed it, and you're ready to go. Pretty much. Pretty much. So did you play football at Fayetteville? No. And I was, again, as I told you, mm-hmm. I was pretty good. In Clinton. Those boys were a lot. Well, I, I knew a lot of them. Didn't you your know? skin hurt? Didn't your face hurt? Didn't your hands uh-uh. hurt? Never what had position any did you play? I played linebacker, and I played offensive guard. Mm-hmm. But honestly... Those those boys were so much better than me, and I think that might have been another deal that God said, you don't need to go that <laughs> re- that direction, so I'm going to stop you. But that was 1965, and there was a lot of talk because in 1980, there was another explosion, and they had one fatality. Another Titan II missile. Yeah, one fatality. But that one garnered more attention because the Cersei one that I was in, although the death toll was 53 people i mean 53 people went to work that day kissed their wives goodbye hugged their kids never went home again so the the damage the emotional damage there with losing 53 lives you know it's the worst titan two accident in the history of the program yes uh we had two was, or three titan twos in arkansas at the time we had 18 oh there were 18 silos uh but anyway the that one was bad from a loss of life and all that. The one that garnered the most attention was the one at Damascus that only killed one person. But that missile had the warhead on it, the one at Cersei didn't. And if that warhead had exploded, 80% of the state of Arkansas would have been incapacitated and under. And that's why that was such a tremendous effect. And when, that, I read, when I was reading about you, I kept coming up with the Titan II missile disaster yours in 1965, and right. then the Titan II missile disaster 1980, right. and I couldn't get it straightened out. <clears throat> Turns out that Mondale was in Little Rock. Vice President Mondale was in Little Rock visiting Clinton on September the 18th, 1980, when that warhead caught fire and blew out of the silo and blew 100 yards into a field, but its safety precautions kept it from... True. And they kept it away from everybody. Yeah, nobody I mean, knew. Uh, but it, like I said, the the ramifications of what could have happened. Vice President Mondale did not even know. They didn't even tell him, and he was in. He was fifty miles away. I didn't know that. I read that online. Of course, you can't believe everything you read online. <laughs> but that's what I, I thought. That was interesting. Back then, the U.S. Air Force, when it had to do with missiles, uh, when it had to do with nuclear warfare, was not required to tell anybody anything that was going on. The, the Air Force could keep it all completely under wraps for fear of the Russia finding out something. Right, right. So that happened in 1980, the last near disaster we had in Arkansas with the Titan II missile. And in 1981, Ronald Reagan decommissioned all of them. And there are none left, thank goodness. Yeah, they... Uh uh, all that money was spent, all the lives lost in various accidents, you know, uh, when they were building them. And then they fill them up, built them up. Different program, different time. I'm speaking today with ad man, Mr. Gary Life, founder of GWL Advertising, C-Spot Run Productions, and GWL Digital. So in 1993, you started GWL Advertising after Gary Wayne Lay, very Southern, cute name, adorable name. I'm kind of was surprised you didn't name it Titan Two. That's what I thought. I thought, why isn't he using Titan Two anywhere? It's like it's a great name. It's strong. Ever think about that? No. Oh well. Uh, your next business, because you've started three. When you start your fourth business, we can name it GWL Titan Two. Um, anyway, 
You have 60 clients, 13 states, unlimited experiences, experience in purchasing power. Tell us how you ended up in the ad business. What did you go to school for? Well, I went uh, majored in marketing and management. Oh, so you actually yeah. were interested in this. And uh, back then, you know, graduated in 69, uh, companies were going to school, colleges, and they were interviewing. They needed employees. They needed this. So I originally went to work out of, uh, out of school for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company which was a part of the AT&T system. And it was, so, it was so ironic because I interviewed them for practice. I thought I wanted to go to work with, for an oil company. That's where a lot of my fraternity brothers were going and all that. That's where the money is. And, and Southwestern Bell was such a, a neat place. And, it and, was. and they just sold me. And so I interviewed them, the, and the guy that I interviewed, he said, hey, we like you. You need to go take this test. If you flunk it, don't bother to call me back. But if you don't, we want you to go work for us. So I went on to this test, and first thing you know, I'm working for Southwestern Bell. And um, I was with them, oh, let's see, through the mid to late 70s. And that was back when the AT&T, the, it was starting to all come together. You know, Southwestern Bell was made up of five states, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, Missouri, Arkansas. Uh and, and they had different companies that were Mountain Bell and all this that worked under the oh, AT&T yeah. system. And they, uh, I was a division manager, and I and kind of toot my own horn a little bit. I was the youngest division manager ever in the AT&T system. Yeah, you're right out of school. Well, it's 20, at that point in time, I'm 24. Yeah. So, but they wanted a, a guy that was from Little Rock who was uh, been with them a year longer than me. He was in Wichita, Kansas. And they wanted he and I to go to New York and head up this sales service split, which put all this AT&T together. Well, I went to New York, and um, Carrie, you know, I'm from Bamber County, right? You're from Clinton, Arkansas. Yeah. So with you know, 47 I looked at it, people in your graduating I looked at class. It, I looked at it, and I said, you know, living in New Jersey, two hours each way on the subway, I don't think so. So there was an opportunity to go to work at, uh, at KRK, Channel 4. And so... Uh, I went over there as just an account executive salesperson and um, kind of got up through the ranks. And uh, uh, they, were, they were a Gannett station at the time. Then Gannett sold them to a group of individual businessmen, some are well-known in the state. And so uh, I was w- with them at that point in time and uh, became vice president general sales manager. Well, so, go, Gary. And, you know— um, Back then, there weren't but three stations, Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 11. I mean, you're talking about a, a neat place to work. People had to have advertising. They were coming to you. And then uh, uh, the group that uh, – and, and the revenues at that point in time, you know, it was just – you hate to say it's a license still, but it was great. Yeah. You know, they were just growth, growth, growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the group decided they wanted to buy another station, and they bought a station in uh, Mississippi. And then we decided they wanted another station, which was a huge station uh, in Texas. And we had a little disagreement about some revenue figures. And so... What does uh, that mean? Well, that means that I was looking for a, <laughs> looking for a job that <laughs> afternoon after we had the meeting that morning. Oh, what which, they wanted to pay you? Well, no, it was it was on some, what they thought the revenues would do and what I thought they would do. And Oh, when you're in sales. Yeah, yeah well, mm-hmm. you know... At that point in time, instead of three stations and that revenue figure where it was without getting into a lot of detail, all of a sudden you had 
independence, cable. Oh, the Kiss, industry was changing. Kiss and Radio had just come in the market, and they were taking a lot of money out of the, out of the market. How old are you now? 71. How old are you? No, not now. I mean, at that time. Oh, at that time. Phew. Are you uh, 30 yeah. yet? Yeah, okay, yeah. so you're in your 30s. Yeah. All right. So, um, and then uh, there was a newspaper war going. I thought I heard your interview uh, with Hussman. The newspaper war going with the Democrat and Gazette. Mm-hmm. So the money was being gobbled up. From the revenue, and I just didn't think the revenues would do what they'd done. And so we kind of had a little disagreement, and, and, you know, it was their ball of wax, so I was looking for a job, which, best thing ever happened to me. Because if it hadn't, I'd been working for a corporation, having a company card, credit card, moving here, moving there, whatever. So I got out. But I'd be less than honest. I was terrified. Sure. I mean, you know, here I am this age, you know, didn't have a car. Didn't have anything. Married yet? Uh, yes. Children and, and, yet? Uh, and, and a little girl. And your wife let you do that? Uh, well, yeah. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> when he thought that she could really do that. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I thought, what am I going to do? Now, uh, I was going through a divorce. Uh, oh, Lord. Well, yeah. and uh, But it was it was one of the, we got married when we were kids, mm-hmm. 19 years old. Well, you and were we having had, a life-changing episode. Well, we had a little episode. girl. But all of a sudden, you know, we, it wasn't the fact of anything else. We just found out, hey, we just want to go different directions. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you how compatible the, uh, the divorce was. My wife of 19 years at the time has worked for me for the last 19. I, people go, another people, guy I love. People Sorry, go honey. into shock I you, love that. when I bring a new employee and say, by the way, Carol and I were married for 19 years. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I looked at what can I do? And uh, I thought maybe I might do some advertising. I mean, I know the I know the electronic market, and my wife now said, "Hey, you got to do that. You got to do it." So I didn't really form GWL. I just was kind of feeling it out and doing this and doing that. And what's really ironic, Landers was the first client I ever had. Wow! How'd you uh, find How'd you find Landers Auto? Through my wife. She she knew them, knew the Landers people, and they were they had a little used car operation at Benton, Arkansas, selling yeah. seventy five cars a month. Steve and his dad. Steve and his dad and John. His brother. John, uh, his cousin. His cousin. And John is what a great man. I mean, mm-hmm. what a great man. And he, I went out and I made a pitch to him. I said, Hey, I could, I can help y'all. They'd never done any advertising. I didn't have a client. Now you talking about the blind leading the blind? That was a big <laughs> experience to go through. But I knew. I knew that, uh, hey, if they'll do it my way, you know, we'll make a difference because, uh, you know, the market, I mean, you, you had all the dealerships and all this, but the, all they were trying to do was just sell used cars in Benton. And so what was really uh, interesting, they let me handle their work. And I brought in Leslie Basham. Yes. Leslie, I knew she was, I mean, she, t- television loved her. She the, never she blinked. Loved her. She and never so, blinked. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do, and this is the way we're going to do it. We're going to tell them what a great place this is to buy a vehicle, and I made sure it was a great place to buy a vehicle. And I said, uh, we're not going to kick the tires. We're not going to throw the prices up there. We're just going to say, hey, here's what we want you to do. Well, the camera loved Leslie. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was two things going. Number one, I thought it was pretty good advertising, but they knew how to sell cars. They treated the public right. They did this and did that. So selling 75 cars, well, who wanted who wanted Landers? Not an agency one wanted Landers. 
So I kind of had them. Well, five years later, they're selling twelve hundred. Because they've whatever. gone, they've, they've didn't, even, they didn't even have a they didn't even have a new car line when I started. Then we picked up Chrysler, picked up this, picked up that, and so forth. So it was great. But the one thing about it was they were loyal to me and handling that account when we started. What was really funny, I handled them. It's the only account I had. Now you're talking about trying to make a living. But then Cliff Peck, you remember Cliff Peck? Yeah. Cliff Peck Chevrolet. His son had a dealership in Biloxi. He was home for, like, the holidays. He saw the advertising. He calls us, once you come down, once you do my stuff. And that wasn't a conflict because you're in two different states. Right. So uh, go down and handle his stuff. Well, then there was a family by the name of Austin that were from Louisiana that happened to be in Gulfport where Pat was. They were in the automotive business. They saw the stuff. They called and said, hey, why don't you come down here and do that? Well, I go down there into Louisiana, do that in Jennings, Louisiana. Well, the next thing you know, there's a car dealer that's in Jennings, Louisiana, that's in New Orleans that sees it, calls and I want you to do this stuff. So, so you're the, first the expert thing, well, on advertising for car dealerships at, the, at that time. At that point in time, we were having good success, but we had good dealers. We were having good success, and so it just kind of started. You know, it was a one-man shop. I mean, and you talking about bad. It would take me a full day to write a 30-second spot. I mean, it just was a disaster. I had, I would travel and I would record the stuff. Then I'd get back and I'd work on it. So I did, you know, I bought the, I bought the media, did the spots. You knew you know, how to buy the media because you'd been in media. You were good at that Well, part. it was almost like, yeah, you knew what to do. Mm-hmm. You knew the inventory. You knew what they had. It was almost like, hey, I ran a TV station. I could be a television sales worst nightmare. I know more than they do. Yeah. But the one thing that, that always happened is that, you know, you just work together with the media. They got a job to do, and you got a job to do. And so you, you, you formed a partnership. So I was always good with them and, and, and tried to treat them right. And they did the same thing for us. We didn't ask for too much. We just asked for the best thing for our clients. You knew what it should cost. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and, and it was a give and take. And it still is this day and age. Yeah. It's a give and take. What do you think about media advertising on TV these days? Well, I think it's, I think it's the whole game has changed. Back 15 years ago, 16 years ago, you know, most of, of your, especially for automotive, it was electronics, whether it be TV, radio, mm-hmm. uh, and it was newspaper. And, you know, budgets might go 60, 40, something like that, television versus print and all that. I mean, if you remember the Democrat Gazette, the automotive section on weekends used to be 18 pages for full color, all the stuff. Yeah. And it's certainly I wouldn't want Mr. Husband to think that I'm bad mouthing this business. I'm not. The public have changed. Yeah. It's instantaneous now. They want instant gratification. People so, buy cars online. Well, so what's happened? You know, I've got 60-something clients in 13 states. Yeah. Ten years ago, every client I had, we did print along with electronic. I don't have one that does print this day and age. Not the first. And and what's happened is is that digital and social media have come in and replaced that segment of the market. Television is still extremely powerful and extremely important. But now everybody wants to get in this other side of the but game. But now they're live streaming, so you can skip commercials well, what do you, you think can, about that but at the same time the, the areas you know the areas that that are still watched very very loyally are the news areas oh. you know things of that nature uh but this also because of of certain segments that have become real popular it's caused us to have to work harder with our product it's caused us to have to be more creative it's 
caused us to have to say it better. And so we, I've got a wonderful, wonderful group. How many people? 33 or four. But we've got, it's, it's just, it's a different game. For example, compliance. Compliance to make sure that you do it right, that you say the right thing, that you don't say something you're not supposed to say. We have to get approval for everything we do because of, of co-op, of reimbursement of funds from manufacturers and all that. Is, are you still doing a ton of uh, automotive or you do? you do? Well, um, I, I did, you know, uh, no, we Middleton do others. I do. I still do Middleton. Uh, I don't do the heart hospital anymore. We got them on track, and uh, and they went a different direction, and they should have because they needed more than attention than what we could give them with the way we were doing it. How do you pick a good client? How do you know if this client's a good client? Well, number one, a lot of it will seek you out, and then what I do, and, and this is, uh, I, if anybody, my many of my people are listening, they've heard me say this. But all these years I've been in this business, and I've had some huge clients. I mean, you know, we had the Honda Group in Houston, Texas, which was the number one local advertising group in America. Incredible results for them. Had the Honda Group in New Orleans. So we've had big groups. I've never signed a contract. That's the only way I like to do business. I'm not going to do it. And the reason I'm not, I'm not going to have a bad, bad client, whether it be automotive or whatever. And if they want to do something that's unethical or whatever, then they can go a different direction. At the same time, they don't need a bad agency. And if I tell them we can do something, and all of a sudden they get in there and say, well, now, Gary, wait a minute, this is not working really like we thought it should. They need to be able to go on. Yeah. But if you're doing a good job yeah, and you're doing it right and you're doing it together, then you don't need a contract. The only <laughs> thing you need is a scope of work that says, this is what we're going to do for you and this is what's going to cost you. I want to tell everybody you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the ad man, Mr. Gary Lay, founder of GWL Advertising, C-Spot Run Productions, and GWL Digital. You started C-Spot Run Productions because you wanted to be in control of the videos you made. Yeah, the... You, know, you did we, that in 2005, I think. We, we, there were some, there's some great production houses here. You know, a lot of, most of them are friends of mine or peers or whatever. But the, the thing about it was, and we used two or three. But the flexibility wasn't there. Because the studio was being used or, whatever. or the cameraman so, was on vacation. And if we had a client that says, hey, I want to be on the air tomorrow with something different, we didn't have that flexibility. Plus the fact that obviously they're making a living, so their charges were pretty well fixed, and our ability to negotiate was somewhat skewed. So my creative director, who's been with me now for 18, 19 years, uh, said, hey, let's do our own thing. And so we did, and and we applied the same we applied the same effort and the same knowledge to the production side as we did from our regular traditional advertising side, and that is, we did good stuff. We would brainstorm what kind of campaigns do we want to run? Where do we want to go here? Biggest one of the biggest mistakes people make in advertising yeah. is they're not consistent. They'll knee jerk. They go here, and if something doesn't really happen, they'll go here, and then they want to go here. Then they think, I'm spending too much. I'm not spending enough. Total confusion. I totally do that. Well, what we do and what you need to do is that you it's, – it's like building a house. You get your foundation. You get something solid. You determine with the client not only where do you want to be next month, where do you want to be in three or four years. And you build that thing, and you stay consistent with it. And where the when the public sees or hears – they know it's you. And mm. then, and, and so, again, it's back to what we said, perception. 
what the perception of a, a, be, a good deal is better than the deal itself. So what we do is that we build on that and we stay consistent. Steve Landers said he never gives a price on a commercial. We went 17 years before we ever put a price on the screen. And, you know, and, and the thing about it is you were talking, Carrie, you were talking about, uh, you know, different dealers in the same market and all that. Mm-hmm. An agency can handle separate dealerships if they have separate buying groups. In other words, if you've oh, got a separate buying group here and then one here, one handles this one, one handles this one. If you've got the same one handling, uh, that gets a little tricky. But everybody buys a car. Yeah, but what happens is this. If you're handling multiple dealerships with one group, one buying group, let's say, for example, what we talked about, the media, mm-hmm. Channel 4, 7, 11, whoever it might be. And that's who you mean by the buying group. They say that they bring you something that's special. Yeah, which a client really are you going to give it to? Which one are you going to give it to? Mm-hmm. You should never have to make that decision. You, but you have separate buying groups. But that don't work all for you. car, don't all dealers want to speak to the same group? I mean, it's you're all selling cars. Don't they speak to the same people? Well, you mean no, well, what I mean by buying groups, you have separate people that work for me that that handle can oh, handle buying different groups within yeah, your. Yeah, I've got an account manager that has a team. Another account manager that has a team. Another account manager has a team. They don't necessarily know what the other one's doing. They don't have a clue, and they shouldn't. And then so if somebody brings you something special, everybody's got it, and then you vie for whatever you want to do. The thing you got to do, I think, in advertising, is that you got to be consistent. But what's happened? What's happened in in the past years? We've gotten so clever with ability to do things, for example, on television, to be really creative, to mm-hmm. do things that are just so out there. But what we do, and, and again, people have heard me say this over and over, but it's true. On Monday after Super Bowl Sunday, we will have a luncheon for our task, for our force. We will go over the commercials in the Super Bowl. Now, here's what's happened. It happens every year. <laughs> what happens is that you get up there and you go through it, and somebody says, God, I love that commercial. Everybody say, yeah, wasn't it great, blah, blah, blah. And you turn around and you look at him and say, who's it for? Oh, yeah. And that blank stare comes on. Now, these people, people have paid two-point-something million dollars for a 30-second spot, and you can't even tell who it is. Mm-hmm. Waste of money. And that's what's happened with a lot of our advertising. Mm-hmm. They've gotten clever. But they forgot to tell the consumer what they wanted to do. And let's take automotive, for example. You take a 30-minute newscast. Got four two-minute breaks. That's 16, 30-second spots. Nine of them are cars. So you better be saying something that the public remembers. And the thing that we've tried to do is that we've tried to tell the public, hey, this is the best place for you to come and the best place to buy a car. And we try to do that every time we hit the air, whether it be TV, whether it be digital, whatever. We're saying the same thing over and over again. But the whole point is this. I'm going to believe it, and they're going to do that, or I'm not going to work with them. In other words, I'm not going to be hypocritical just for the money and say, well, yeah, you need to go here. I'm going to believe that that's the place you need to go. Right. And that way you can put your whole effort into and it and be happy about mm-hmm. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a couple of different markets where we have three or four dealers, different buying groups, and we feel good about everything we're doing. And the thing about it is all of them are successful, and that's the neat thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell you. Do you have anybody that's too small? No, money. You know, it's not the money. Now, you know, you I, I, but I want them to be aggressive. I yeah. want them to be consistent. But it's like, you know, Mark Middleton. 
And yeah. I'm sure he, if he's listening, he'll laugh at this story, but it's true. You know, and I'm, I'm going to tout my client. But Mark walked in s- several years ago. He said, I've got the best heating and air conditioning company in America. Nobody knows about it. I said, I bet we can fix that. And so we came up with a campaign. And you remember that campaign, I'll Take Care of That? Uh-huh. I do. Well, you'll always remember it because it was neat. It was. So now I believe Mark Milton is the best heating and air conditioning company in America, but everybody knows about it. It's a different story. We did the same thing with Hard Hospital, and I hate to lose them, but it was better for them to go on. But we gave them an identity that started, you know, hey, this is where you need to come. Mm-hmm. And you do. You tell stories for them. Yeah. So it's a It's a tough business. Um, your name's on everything. What's your legacy? It's GW, G, GWL's on everything. Well, GWL, you know, Gary Wayne Lay. You know, being from Clinton, everybody had two names. I know, Gary Wayne. <laughs> Jim Bill, I Gary love Wayne, it. whatever. But love uh, it. The, the thing I want to do is this, and this is what I've in, tried to instill with our people. There's two things I believe in I believe in loyalty. Yes. And I believe in ethics. Yes. You know, and if you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm doing it right, then, then you're in the wrong business. But I, I want to leave, I want to leave with people that will always look at, at our company or, whatever they thought and said, hey, they did it the right way. And and I think that's extremely Are important. they going to? I think so. You feel good about it? Yeah. I mean, the thing we've got, got a great staff, great people that care. Diverse staff. Yeah. You got a nice, diverse staff. You can look up, if you want to go look at Gary's website, you can go on his website and see his whole staff. They're all on there. And Gary's funny. You can read all these funny things he says. What? He says <laughs> about himself. You wrote about yourself. I'm not gray. I'm just black or white. Well, and I wanted to add and bald. Well, but yeah, you can do it. But, but he, a guy told me one time, he said, Gary, people will never say Gary Lay's okay. People either really like you or they don't like you. Nobody it's can all, not like you, Because Gary. it's all black and white to me. It's like I told you earlier. If you have to justify something and wiggle around and do this and do that, and you have to justify it, chances are it's wrong. That's a good barometer. I mean, it's just apparent to me. When you see something, it's either this way or this way. And that's the way we try to operate our business. Gary, thank you for coming on. It's been great. Thank you. You are so interesting. Gray, who's our guest next week? Do you remember? Uh, uh, we are doing a rerun of Josh uh, Hill of Jeopardy fame. He is of Jeopardy mm-hmm. fame. He's a seven-time winner. He's from North Little Rock, Arkansas. And because everyone was watching the recent $2 million will, winner, James let me see if I can say his name right. James Hulsehauer. He was something a, like that. He was a gambler. He was a professional gambler in Las Vegas. He won over two million dollars on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. The world was fixated on it, or at least I was. So I thought it'd be fun to run Josh because he talks about all the happenings behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we have Mr. Charles Morgan, founder of Axiom. Gary, I want to thank you again. Here's thank your you gift. So much. Here's your gift. Oh, thank you so it's much. It's a U.S. and Arkansas desk set for your desk. Very good. Thank uh, you. I'll put it up there to, in the morning. Good. Thank you. For our listeners who might have a great entrepreneurial story that they'd like to share, send a brief bio and your contact info to me at Carrie at flagandbanner.com. That's Carrie, K E R R Y, at flagandbanner.com. And to all, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening. And I know you did today. Whatever we said today, I hope help it. I help. I hope it helps you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up in Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. 
You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal? To help you live the American dream.